Well, good morning. Welcome to Apostles Houston. My name is David Cumbie. I'm lead pastor. And I want to especially welcome you if you're worshiping with us today for the first time. You know, it's our custom uh, when we gather to read from the gospel. And so as we do that, I just want to invite you uh, to stand wherever you are. Stand together this morning as we hear from God's word. Our gospel reading this morning comes from John chapter 8. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, and that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But they heard it, and they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, in these difficult times, we need your truth and we need your grace. And so, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us this morning? Would you press these words deep into our hearts that we might follow you and that we might be your people beyond the walls? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm excited to jump back into 1 Peter this morning. You know, last week we got started with our new summer series, Beyond the Walls, and we're looking at this powerful and I think incredibly relevant letter of 1 Peter that was written in the first century to followers of Jesus facing their own really difficult times and time of suffering. And so I think they were asking questions probably a lot like what we're asking, questions about uh, who we are and how to live in the world, how to be the church beyond the walls. And so last week we, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1 and we talked about how Peter really wants us to understand in order to know how to live, we first have to know who we are. And so we discovered that we are actually chosen exiles. And knowing who we are, knowing that we're chosen exiles, is really helpful right now. I think for two reasons. One, because it means in the chaos of this moment, our identity is not on the line. We know exactly who we are. We are the children of a loving Heavenly Father. And so we can rest in that. And we don't have to be worried about who we are. And then the second thing I think is important um, and helpful is that we're, we're not surprised by our circumstances. As those who are in exile, um, we know that, that hardship actually reminds us that this is not our home. And it reminds us that as exiles, our hope is not in this world, but it rests fully in the person of Jesus. And so this is who we are. We're, we're chosen exiles. And it 
leads us to this question of then how do we live? If that's who we are, how do we live, especially in times like these? And so I want to turn us again to 1 Peter beginning in verse 13. This is what the Apostle Peter writes. He says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as He who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy as I am holy. So Peter's saying here that look, we're new people and we have a new identity, and with that comes a new way of living. And what is that new way of living? He says it boils down to this, that God says to be holy as I am holy. So Peter's quoting from Leviticus 19 verse 2 here, when God calls the people of Israel to be holy, his, his chosen exiles to be holy as he is holy. And again, what Peter's doing here is he's connecting the church's story, our story, to the bigger story of history, of how he's been at work all through history. And the reason he's doing that is because he wants us as followers of Jesus to understand that what God is saying here is nothing new. Uh, holiness has always been God's call for his people. He, he called Israel to be holy, and here Peter is saying he's calling us, the church, to take up that same way of life. But what does it mean to be holy? To be holy means to be set apart in relationship to God, who, whose way of, of being and thinking and acting is utterly unique. You know, it's, it's that this God who's been revealed to us, who, who's drawn near to us, is actually totally other. He, he is set apart. He is different than us. He's holy. And so what Peter's telling us is that we've been reborn, right, as children of, of our Heavenly Father. And so in the same way that kids look like their parents, we are to look and act like our Heavenly Father. His DNA, in other words, becomes our DNA. Be like God and see the world and people the way that God sees them. And so that's what it means to be holy. But how do we actually live out this holiness? Well, the great news is we know exactly what it looks like to live out holiness. We know exactly what it looks like because we know what it looked like with Jesus. Jesus was the most holy person who ever lived. And so we know what God is like because we know what Jesus is like. I love what N.T. Wright says. He says, I don't believe in Jesus because I believe in God. I believe in the God I see revealed in Jesus. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul is getting at in Colossians 1.15 when he says, Jesus, the Son, is the, is the visible image of the invisible God. And then one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, John 1.14, tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what the church um, has called the, the idea of incarnation. It's this theological doctrine that means basically God became one of us. It's this beautiful and mysterious reality that, that Jesus entered into the world as fully God and fully human. And so when God says, be holy as I'm holy, he's calling us to, in other words, to kind of incarnate this presence of Jesus, to, to embody God, in other words, in the world. 
And so what does it mean to, to live out holiness, to embody holiness? Uh, the short answer, it means to live in Jesus and in the way of Jesus. You see, Jesus, he came into the world not just to save us um, through his death and resurrection, but he also came into the world to show us how to be human again, uh, to be those who are truly created in the image of God. And so we're to pattern our humanity um, after the humanity of Jesus. And Jesus was so human. You know, sometimes I think we forget that. He was fully God and he was fully human. So you just read through the Gospels, and you'll see this. You'll see how human Jesus was. His heart, his emotions, his relationships, the way he speaks, the way he touches people. In fact, too often, I think we worship a Jesus who's more like a collection of propositional truths and doctrines. And that's really hard to follow a Jesus like that, to follow a Jesus who's not really embodied, who's not human. Jesus took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2 says that that's really important because what that means is that Jesus now lives in me. This is what he says. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so being a follower of Jesus isn't just about downloading more and more truth and information about God. Jesus actually wants to live in you and live through you in the world. A while back, there was uh, this movement in, in kind of Christian circles. Uh, some of you will remember it was called WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? And it was cheesy and commercialized, and it kind of became this joke. You know, people kind of mocked it. Um, but it was getting at this idea of incarnation, right? It was, it was getting at this idea of Jesus kind of in the flesh and in the moment. But instead of WWJD, I think what we really are after is WWJD if Jesus were me, right? If, if Jesus were living out my life as an electrician or as a doctor or as a graduate student at Rice, if Jesus was living out my life uh, as a single guy dating a girl, my girlfriend or as a parent with my kids or running my company, if Jesus were living in my life, what would my life actually look like? In other words, what would happen in your humanity if you let Jesus live through you. God says, be holy as I am holy. He's inviting us, in other words, to, to become like Jesus. This is what Peter calls sanctification back in verse 2. And what sometimes in the church we call formation or discipleship or apprenticeship. Whatever we call it, um, too often, I think, when we think about it, we, we think that it's something that really only happens in certain ways. We think it happens on Sunday morning or uh, through great sermons or Bible teaching or a Bible study or a prayer group or our own personal devotion time. We, we kind of have this idea that holiness takes place in a really particular way, in a really particular place. And I'm not saying those things aren't part of that, but I think too often that view leads us to just having lots and lots of knowledge about God without letting it really change our lives and having even less of an impact on others around us. And we've seen this. I mean, we've all seen this phenomenon where people, 
They worship in a church decade after decade. They, they, they know the Bible through and through, and yet somehow they seem unchanged in, in a deep and meaningful way. Jesus actually warned against this misunderstanding of holiness. In John 5.39, he said to the Pharisees, he says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures, Jesus says, that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, these Pharisees, they knew the law. They knew God's word to, to a depth, honestly, that would put every one of us to shame. And yet, they're not holy. They're, they're not holy in a way that actually results in life in the way of Jesus. And so here's the truth. The truth is, most of us don't need to know more. What we need to do is live out what we already know. Jesus said doing that is really pretty simple. He summed up life and holiness with two commands. In Matthew 22, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So to live like Jesus, to live a life of holiness, in the simplest way means to obey these two commands. And that reveals something very important, I think, about holiness. Holiness is loving God and loving neighbor. To be holy means to be set apart, but it doesn't mean to live apart. To be holy means to be chosen exiles, to be different, but yet to live among. Too often we've defined holiness to mean avoid the world, stay pure, don't get contaminated, withdraw from culture. Um, we form Christian ghettos to kind of keep the dangerous, unholy world on the outside. But if we redefine holiness based on how Jesus actually lived his life, then holiness is not about kind of removing ourselves from the world. It's, it's about God sending us into the world. Jesus doesn't see the world and say, oh, let's get away from that. Jesus sees the world and says, let's get in there. And so the world needs a church that says that same thing, that looks out and sees the world and says, let's get in there. Let's go to the world. Let's be the church beyond the walls. A lot uh, of what's going on right now um, is people kind of taking stands. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I see this a lot on social media. It's kind of taking stands. And what that looks like is condemning others and kind of criticizing others. I raise that because I think it's really important for us as followers of Jesus to resist an impulse to kind of take that approach. It would be easy for us to think of ourselves as the church beyond the walls means to go out and take a stand. And there are times for that. There, there's times when Jesus himself took a stand in the temple, uh, when the religious uh, kind of structure was abusing the poor. Jesus was outraged and he took a stand. But here's what's interesting to me is when you look at the life of Jesus, most of the time Jesus doesn't look out at a broken, hurting world and take a stand. It's hard for me, in other words, to imagine a Jesus who takes a stand on Twitter, for a Jesus who, who points a condemning finger through the screen at different groups of people. In fact, in John 3.17, it says that Jesus, the holiest person who ever lived, came into the world, was sent into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. You see, Jesus' MO wasn't to take a stand. It was to take on flesh. It was to enter into the world by entering into people's lives. 
You know, it's interesting, Jesus had a reputation in the Gospels, and he was called different things. And one of the things that he became known as was a friend of sinners. And when we hear that word sinners, I think it's important for us to realize who that meant. That meant people in Jesus' day who were living without God and not really for God. They were kind of on the outside looking in. It was people who were hurt and hurting others, people who were broken uh, and in broken relationships, the poor, uh, the sick, the the forgotten, those who felt lost, those who felt trapped in in all kinds of addictions and brokenness, people who were living in, in rebellion against God even. In other words, people who sound a lot like us. I mean, that, that sounds like where all of us start, doesn't it? I mean, it, we all are lost, in other words, until we come to know this Jesus. And so Jesus sought out these kinds of people, and he earned this reputation as a friend of sinners. And so it begs the question, I think, how is it that the holiest person who ever lived, how did Jesus earn that reputation? It also makes me wonder about my own reputation, What is my reputation among my neighbors? What is your reputation? What is the reputation of our church? Jesus earned this reputation, and this is how he earned it. Jesus loved to eat with people. It sounds simple, but it's it's a really powerful uh, thing that Jesus did. It was one of the most intimate and hospitable things that you could do in Jesus' day and in his culture was to eat a meal with someone. And what you see over and over is Jesus eating and drinking with all kinds of people. One of the groups that Jesus kept eating with over and over was a group known as the tax collectors in the Gospels. Tax collectors were hated. They were traitors. They fell in with the Roman Empire to oppress their own people for profit, and they were notoriously corrupt. Everybody hated them, and Jesus was friends with them. One day, in fact, Jesus was going through town. This is from Luke 19. He was going through the town of Jericho, and he encountered this chief tax collector, a guy who was over the city in probably a region named Zacchaeus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, hey, let's, let's have lunch. In fact, let's have lunch, and let's go to your place. And so Jesus goes to this tax collector's house. And we, we know from other stories in the Gospels that what tended to happen was, was in a setting like this, Zacchaeus' friends would have come, and they were probably tax collectors too, and friends of tax collectors. And they came, and they sat, and they enjoyed a meal with Jesus. And so I want you to kind of put yourselves in this moment with Jesus eating with all these tax collectors. You know, Jesus' friends, his disciples, would have been in the room. And I imagine maybe at some point they, they went over and they pulled Jesus aside and they just said, hey, Jesus, we, you know, we get it. This, this is great what you're doing over here, but you have to understand how hard this is for us. I mean, these, these people that you're eating with have, have hurt us. They've hurt our families, our, our, our country. They've been, you know, just done horrible things, been incredibly unjust. And you're sitting over there, you're just, you're just having a meal with them. You're talking with them. You're laughing with them. And I imagine that they, they maybe even ask him, like, Jesus, we, what we want to know is, when are you going to let them have it? Right? When, when are you going to set them straight? When are you going to condemn them for what they've done? Because if you don't, you know what's going to happen. If you don't do that, Jesus, they're going to interpret all this as you kind of condoning what they've done, that you, that you just accept them. And isn't that how we tend to think? When we encounter people who, 
who think different than us or believe different us, live differently than us, whether it's about sexuality or race or parenting or COVID-19, people that have hurt us or done us wrong, when we encounter those people, isn't this how we tend to respond? We tend to think really there's only two options here. You either condone it or you condemn it. And honestly, we live in a world right now where, where these are the options you condemn or you condone. You have to pick a side. And so that's what people did with Jesus. People did this with Jesus all the time. Pick a side, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He refuses to pick a side. In fact, he has a totally different way. And what's that way? It's the way of holiness. He chooses to be like God, his Father. He chooses to see people and the world the way God does. And so he chose to enter into people's lives. He chose to be with people no matter who they were or what they had done. And what that means is something actually I think is really scandalous. (laughs) What it means is that Jesus chose, he chose in a sense to overlook their sin. Now that's not to make light of sin or to call something good when it's wrong. I mean, no one took sin more seriously than Jesus. I mean, Jesus gave his life on the cross to rescue us from sin. Jesus took sin very seriously. But the perfect son of God who took on flesh entered into the world which was drowning in sin and he chose not to condemn it, but to love it. See, Jesus' love for humanity, it it led him to overlook a lot of sin in the people he encountered. And the truth is, his love for you and his love for me caused him to overlook a lot of our sin. 1 Peter 4.8 says that, that Jesus, this love that he had for others is a love that we too are to have. It says, love one another deeply. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And this whole idea, I know it makes me uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable. But Jesus made people uncomfortable. But how different, I mean, just think about how different our engagement with the world would be if we took this approach. What if instead of condemning on the one hand or condoning on the other, we, we sat down for a meal with people? What if we entered into life with our friends, with our neighbors, with people who are different than we are? What if we took the time to actually to embody holiness the way Jesus did? I know this brings up a lot of questions, and maybe it concerns you. Maybe the question you're asking right now is, that's great, but what about truth? Don't we have to, as followers of Jesus, take a stand for truth in the world? You know, we began this morning about reading John chapter 4. I read just a little bit of, of of this account of Jesus being in the temple and the religious leaders bringing a woman and and kind of throwing her before him in the temple. And the reason they did that is because they were trying to force Jesus again to pick a side. I mean, this was a clear instance where Jesus was, uh, they were trying to force Jesus to stand for something. And it was a chance for him to stand for truth, right? I mean, it's as clear cut as it gets. This woman had literally been caught and there was a punishment. And as harsh as it might sound, there was punishment deserved, okay? And so here the question is, what's Jesus going to do? Because 
if you don't condemn sexual immorality, right, we've heard this before, if you don't condemn sexual immorality, we all know that's a slippery slope and society goes down and, you know, the whole hell in a handbasket deal. We've heard that. We, we, we know that argument. And, and so condemn or condone, this, this is the choice that Jesus has. And what does Jesus choose? Neither. Jesus kneels down, and I think probably next to her, I think she was probably on the ground. He, he kneels down and he, he writes something in the ground. We're not told what. But then he stands back up and he looks out at everybody. And he says, he says all right, let any one of you, whoever it is that is without sin, you get to throw the first rock. And we're told that, that everyone left. It cleared the temple. And Jesus and this woman were left standing there together. And then Jesus says to her, he says, where, where are your accusers? Who stands to accuse you? And I imagine with, with tears streaming down her face, she says, there's no one. They're all gone. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. See, Jesus was the most holy person who has ever lived, and he was the least judgmental person the world has ever known. He was, as John 1.14 says, the word made flesh, God in the flesh, full of grace and truth. Holiness is grace and truth. It's a Jesus who comes and takes our sin on himself and refuses at the same time to condemn us. And we don't know what to do with a Jesus like that. But Jesus knows what to do. He knows that we can't fix ourselves. We can't fix each other. We can't fix our world. And so he comes to rescue us from our sin. He comes and he takes our sin on himself on the cross. And he did that out of his love for us. He was the word made flesh, full of grace and truth. And so the last thing that Jesus says to this woman is he says, go and sin no more. But when does he say it? He says it after she knows that he loves her. She knows that Jesus loves her. And so it was after he had kind of captured her heart. Then and only then does he deal with how she's living. Jesus doesn't go after our behavior first. In other words, he goes after our hearts. So God says, be holy. Be holy as I am holy, full of grace and truth. And he's, he's asking us to resist this false choice to condemn or to condone. And the question is, what if, what, if we, what if we took up this way of Jesus and we let the Holy Spirit do the, the life-changing work uh, of repentance and salvation and transformation? What if we let the Holy Spirit do in other people's lives what the Holy Spirit is doing in our own lives? God says, be holy as I am holy. What that means is no matter how dark things get, no matter who's in power, what laws get passed or don't get passed, no matter what we lose or what we suffer, his word to us is still the same. Be holy as I am holy. Love me. Love my neighbor. So God invites us to be holy as he is holy, to live as chosen exiles. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you are the God who loves us and entered into the world, who took on flesh.
And Lord, that you have invited us into life with you, this way of life, this way of holiness. And so, Lord, would you send us to be the church in the world, to be full of grace and truth, to love you and to love our neighbor, to be holy as you are holy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.